Hello, I'm Josh Starmer and welcome to Human Stories in AI with StackQuest and Lightning AI. In this series, we'll hear about the career journeys of passionate AI experts. From their humble beginnings to conquer challenges, we'll be inspired by the real-world experiences of professionals thriving in the ever-evolving AI landscape. Human Stories in AI is brought to you by Lightning AI. Code together, prototype, train, and deploy AI web apps, all from your browser with zero setup. Personally, I love Lightning AI because it makes it super easy to use and learn from the StackQuest coding tutorials. Just go to the web page, click on the Run button, and bam! You get code that you can play with without downloading anything or installing any packages. Today, we have special guest Rick Marks, a professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Data Science and Society. Before UNC, Rick was a director at Google's Advanced Technology and Projects Group, exploring new interaction approaches for ambient computing environments. And before that, Rick founded the PlayStation Magic Lab at PlayStation R&D. So, without further ado, Rick, can you tell us about your journey to where you are right now at UNC? How did this all start? Sure, I actually, I just covered this a little bit in my class that I'm teaching with my students. I kind of gave them my full journey. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Starts in high school, I was really interested in using technology to try to augment my uh, social insecurity. So like, I, I tried to make a program that would maybe like come up with the perfect joke to tell or the perfect quote to have on hand. And I was thinking it would be like maybe in my ear and it could tell me what to say and I could, you know. So I started typing in all these quotes and all these jokes, having no idea how I'd ever like get it to do the right thing at the right time. But I started doing all this work. Of course, I abandoned that project at some point and decided it was infeasible for me in high school <laughs> to figure out how to do that. Uh -huh. But nowadays, it's much more possible. And so in class, we talked about a lot about the ways you might do something like that now. What are some ways to do that now? <laughs> well, I mean, basically, with Chep GPT now, you can type in kind of something. If, so if, if you had what had been said for the last 30 seconds, it would probably have something pretty interesting to add to that, which would be relevant. It's very good at that now. There's a bunch of issues about you know recording and listening and things like that that might not be easily <laughs> solved. But the actual technology part of coming up with something to add. And along the way, there was multiple times when I have been interested in the same project. So uh -huh. at, Google, at Google, I was interested in that project and we, we gave it a name and stuff. So it's, uh, but anyways, that's kind of my journey. It started in high school wanting to figure out how to use context around you mm -hmm. and technology together to augment your life, give you, you know, enhance your life. Oh, that's fantastic. I actually love that. Uh, cause it's kind of a, I love the origin, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's such a, such a small and simple thing. And I completely uh, identify with that. Like I'm one of those people that always thinks of the right thing to say about two days later, you know, <laughs> like I'll be laying in bed and I'm like, Oh, oh I should have said this. Uh, uh, so to have anything that might help me uh, in those situations, uh, just, I mean, I'll sign up and buy that, whatever it is. <laughs> The only issue is if everybody has it, it kind of levels the playing field again. So <laughs> if you're vastly successful in making a product like that, then you no longer have an edge. That's true. That's true. And then the people that are just a little better uh, will all of a sudden rise to the top again. Oh, well. Um, 
But anyways, I'll be an early adopter and have like a few months of bliss and feeling like I'm witty and, uh, you know, can talk in the spur of the moment. Um, that sounds fantastic. I also am really interested in the idea of combining it with some of the ideas from video games. So just mm -hmm. having a dry oracle, let's call it, or something that has these answers for you isn't I mean, it's nice, that's information, but it doesn't excite me as a person as much as having maybe a character that I have a relationship with that mm -hmm. shares that information with me. And so the project I worked on previously was, we called it Daxter, and there's a game called Jack and Daxter. It's a video game, and you play Jack, and Jack is the hero and goes around, and Daxter sits on your shoulder, and Daxter is all the color commentary. He, I mean, he's not really doing anything except for constantly commenting on everything that's going on around you. Uh -huh. So we called it Daxter, and you can imagine this thing is just observing your life and adding little comments in when it wants. Or maybe, you know, you could implement it different ways. It could be your screensaver on your phone, or you, you could glance down and see if Daxter has anything to add at that moment. Yeah. And maybe it could be color-coded so you could glance and you could see it. it's just going to be something funny or it's going to be informational. Like different ways you could implement this to not interrupt your life. I didn't really want it to, you know, take over your life or something or be something you look like you're constantly distracted by. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe at the end of the day you could like replay the highlights, you know, plus, <laughs> plus color commentary. It's sort of like watching Sports Center, but it's like your life center. Uh, that, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, so can you tell me, so you, let's just, maybe let's back up a little bit. So you're back in high school, you're trying this coding thing, you're realizing, uh, that it's maybe a little too difficult, uh, to do at the time. Uh, so did you just abandon that thing and you're like, I'm never going to do that again. Or did you, did you say, Oh, I need, I need to, in order to achieve this dream, I need to take this path or this path or, or what happened next? I mean, it wasn't it like that's been the driver of my whole life, but it's been a something that's always been there. I ended up using all the code that I wrote for a science project in my senior year or junior year where I made a robot, and the robot was really just a frame holding a computer out, and the computer had a face on it, and it had different personalities. So you could switch to the joke personality or the famous quote personality, and it would its voice changed a little bit, and it was mostly just a computer program that was running on a TV that was like... But yeah, that I kind of repurposed the code for something useful. Yeah, and then I got very interested in graphics and things like that. So I, I definitely did stuff that was more along the lines of three D graphics, virtual reality for a long time in my career. Also got very interested in computer vision and understanding context from, you know, what the what the player or user is interested in and doing with their body or their hands or their face to try to enhance experiences. Was that just sort of like a real smooth evolution from one thing to the other, or were there certain events that kind of drove, you know, your interest in computer vision, or was there like a certain problem that needed to be solved? Yeah, definitely. I started my PhD thesis with not the intention to do computer vision, but we needed some sensing for the robot. We were working on an underwater robot with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and in the first summer I worked with them, we needed some sensing for the robot, so we got a camera and a 
a frame grabber board and we needed to understand what was in the scene and we wanted to just do a really simple thing where we'd move a, a very simple target like a bright dot around and the robot would follow it and then make that work underwater. And my focus was going to be the control theory part of it and moving the robot with control. But the sensing part of it turned out to be very interesting and I got kind of absorbed in the sensing part. and. Everyone kept saying, this should be your thesis. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm doing control. And they're like, no, no, you should do computer vision. And I'm like, eventually, I saw the light and <laughs> pivoted. Switched over to computer vision. Yeah. And so your thesis was in computer vision. And, and were you like, I'm in love with computer vision, and I want to keep doing this? Or what happened next after that? So computer vision, I still did the control part. I really wanted to do it for the sake of like making the robot move. But the robot moving was a pretty simple part of it compared to understanding what to follow. So we, we did a thing where you follow kind of a, a, a fish, which we used like a plastic turtle to move it around, and it could follow it. It had a pan and tilt system. We also um, did a mosaicing of the ocean floor, so taking multiple photographs and stitching them together. And that's something that you can't really see the whole ocean floor because you can't back up because marine snow makes it, you know, you can't see that far underwater. So it gave you like a new capability to see a bigger part. So using these sensing things to give you new capabilities is what I kind of got excited about. And so going, I went and worked for a, a startup that did a lot of computer vision and then moved on to Sony and used computer vision for video games. Um, I, one little technical term, uh, uh, ocean snow. <laughs> Marine snow. Marine, Marine snow. snow, what is yeah. that? Well, it, it, it's kind of a general term for all the different particulates that are in the water and make it so the water is no longer transparent when you look through it. What, what kind of depth were you guys working at in terms of like, uh, presumably that means you had to go pretty deep to, to, uh, to photograph the, the floor. What was the depth? So the, the, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute is right off right off of the coast of um, California, there's a thing called Soquel Canyon, which is a deep underwater canyon. And so they can go not very far off the coast and get really deep really fast. And that's kind of why they picked that area to do a lot of the work. So you can get really deep and get very hard to see. And there's also no light given to you. You have to bring your own light. And when you try to shine the light on it, there's no ambient light, so it's only your light. And that's the worst part, because that basically all those particles are just, you know, reflecting off so you don't have any extra light around to help you so uh, yeah I, I had like a mathematical model for the marine snow and it was very I was very proud of that part of it but that's the more theoretical part of my thesis and I think I was in a robotics lab so they were more excited about the practical parts <laughs> of my thesis do you do you still do any robotics at all these days I'm just out of it's just out of curiosity <laughs> well at, at Sony we actually used a robot to do some of the um, some of the testing for the, like we had a the controller, the PlayStation Move controller, which is also the VR input controller. Mm -hmm. We wanted to be able to move it around and see how it would behave, the sensors inside of it and things. So having a robot do that for you, you can repeat, do repeated tests and things. Oh, so okay. using it more for the kind of practical side of things. I don't do a lot of the other side. I've, I've played around with like vacuuming robots a bit and things. But. <laughs> You don't have robots all over your house doing all the things. No, but right next to me is the robots group in UNC. So. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> so you're right at home. You're in. Uh, just to just to uh, just to tell the the listeners, you are based in this. I'm officially in the School of Data Science and Society. They hired me, 
and I have an appointment in computer science. And I started by teaching in computer science because there aren't any classes in the data science school yet because it's just been formed. So, so I, I intend to teach data science classes as well, but I started with computer science. I guess that leads us to where you are right now. You are, you're doing this stuff. Uh, can you tell us about your current research? I'm under the impression that you're getting into generative AI, and I wanted to hear about um, what you wanted to do in that direction. Sure. Maybe I'll, I'll back up a little bit. And like, okay. When I was at PlayStation, I was really interested in graphics and virtual reality, and I loved that work. But I wanted to do something a little different. I got pretty excited about AI, started taking some AI classes, machine learning. And uh, I got one of the smart speakers for my father, and I gave it to him, and uh, he said he wanted to return it. It was a gift, and he said he wanted to return it because it didn't work. And I was like, what do you mean it doesn't work? What did you do? And he said, I, I asked it, when is golf? And it didn't know. I'm like, well... <laughs> That's, I mean, I can understand as an end user, you might think it should be able to answer that, but there's, he need, it had no context for what he was asking me. But I started thinking about that, and I'm like, if he was wearing his you know, cleats and had his golf bag on his shoulder, he probably means, when is my tea time? But if he's flipping through channels on a television, he probably means, like, when is the masters on right now? So, like, more context is all you really need to answer that question effectively. And so trying to get that context became very interesting. And I'm a, it's very related to computer vision anyways, again, just trying to get more context. Well, that's what I did. I went to Google to try to work on that. And I, my team did a lot of work in trying to understand context and more about machine learning, a lot more about um, real-time inference of things, gesture recognition, lots of different things. So, Yeah. And so, and that leads us to generative AI uh, and your, you know, your, the research that you'd like to do in this area. And generative AI is, is very new. So it's like even hard to say that I have had a plan to do anything with it. But I, I've, I've been interested in combining AI and virtual reality, for example, for a while. And a lot of my students are actually interested in the same thing. I'm teaching a class right now. My focus has been on teaching but I do intend to do, start some research. One of the areas is, and some of my students made a final project actually in the class I'm teaching that did this. So the idea of creating things within the virtual world that are dynamically based on what's happening or what the user wants to happen. So some of my students, they made a, uh, one of their projects was, they called it like a, a magic um, painting, so you, or a magic canvas. So you say what you want and then the, it appears on the canvas and then you can like hang it on your wall in VR and so you can just keep asking for this canvas to make pictures and of course it's using something like these uh, generative AI image creation things so you talk you have a text to speech or speech to text system and then the text is fed into one of these very cool that's pretty cool for a two-week project oh my gosh yeah two weeks <laughs> <laughs> how big were the teams out of curiosity two people team two, two person teams so. okay that's a nice size <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the issues start to come up i mean right now generative ai is is moving fast mm -hmm. and they really wanted to make a 3d model generation but the generation for 3d models right now takes about a minute okay and images take only a few seconds so they decided to pivot and do images instead of 3D models. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things generally trying to use any of this in a user interface kind of situation is there's some latency 
And I mean, everyone experiences it right now. You type something in and then you wait a little bit to see what it comes back with. And that's okay in kind of a text transactional interface, but it's not so good in a voice interface and it's definitely not good in a kind of uh, real-time situation. That, that's actually when you were telling me about your original plan to make a, a little earpiece that could give you witty comments. The first thing I was thinking about was the latency there and how there everyone else could be smooth and and I I might be able to come up with the right phrase but there'd be always be that lag and be, and everyone would be like is is Josh a robot? I mean that, that there's there's nothing more robotic than that little lag, right? That little delay that it seems completely unhuman and unnatural. Yeah, you can um, see a little happening in the meantime. Exactly. I actually worked on I mean video game developers are very good at dealing with these kind of issues and they hide things that are problems. It's lots of smoke and mirrors, kind of like Hollywood sets, you know, they're all and so we talked about how you could hide this like latency. So we, one of the concepts was like if you ask for a 3D object, there's a bunch of boxes behind this. They're, they're going to just use a robot, but the, there's a bunch of boxes behind the robot, and the robot would turn and go and pick up a box and shake it, and then say no, and like it go and like, and eventually, it, you know, after a minute or whatever time, it would give you the box and you'd open it, and there would be the 3D object that you'd requested. So you kind of like put it into the story, maybe. Yeah, I love that. I actually really like that because it it, it uses kind of storytelling as a way to um, sort of solve the problem of, of latency, and it makes it it makes the makes the latency sort of like not not necessarily a problem. I mean, the way you solve it is a way to um, to tell the story of there's all these boxes in a room, and and I don't know. I love that. I, I, any any opportunity there is for storytelling, I'm is something that I'm really interested in. Yeah, there's a great conference called The Future of Storytelling that I've gotten to go to a couple times. And they really look at how storytelling and, and technology kind of meet together. It's a very cool conference. I would love to hear more about this conference. <laughs> what can you tell me about it? Uh, well, so it, it, it's uh, in New York, and they have a very unique uh, process. So everyone gets on a ferry at the, in the morning, and you go to somewhere that's not accessible any other way, really. And so you're kind of isolated. You're there. And the whole experience kind of begins right then. And they bring in different storytellers and different technologists, and they each give talks. And there's a lot of, a lot of art and different things all merged together. And there is a very small number of people because it is like a, so it's, it's not easy to go every time. I don't know what happened during the pandemic. It must have been difficult, but hopefully that conference is still going, actually. I don't know. It sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely amazing. A another connection of, uh, of generative AI and uh, virtual reality, for example. There's a, a fantasy book series that I read a long time ago, and there's these kind of special people that have the ability to manipulate reality. And so they just start to want the reality to be a certain way, and then they can walk through it, and it changes to match what they want. And they kind of just think about it, and sometimes they kind of talk out loud, and ha it happens. And I mean, we could kind of do that now with generative AI and virtual reality. You could basically start to say what you want and the, the world around you could start to form into that space. It's a, yeah, it's a very cool uh, book series, but also we can almost implement that in VR. That sounds cool. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was wondering uh, if you can tell us a little bit more about the class you're teaching. Um, uh, I mean, the project that you described sounds pretty cool, but what are the other kind of 
topics that you cover and and um, tell us just more about the class. Sure, it's uh, introduction to virtual reality and 3D graphics. So we start at the very lowest level, basically the mathematical process of getting pixels on the screen from mm -hmm. a model representation. So you have projection and transforms, and it's a lot more math, I think, than some of the students expected it would be. <laughs> uh, a lot of linear algebra. Uh -huh. But then after that, once they kind of understand how you would render something on the screen, we stop and then we use a package, like we used Unity in my class, that lets you do a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Still have to understand transforms and how to put everything together. And then they use that for a little while. And then after they get comfortable with that, then we go on and add virtual reality on top of all that. So you use that package to build a virtual reality experience. So teaching a lot of different things in one class, mm -hmm. actually, maybe. But it, it's, we go I mean, it sounds fast. fantastic. Um, I love it. Uh, um, I love it because when I, I used to work at UNC a long time ago, or not that long ago, but <laughs> a long time ago, I had a summer job in, in the computer science department at UNC, and we did a virtual reality project. So it's kind of cool from my perspective to know that virtual reality at UNC is still going strong. Yeah, it's um, one of the birthplaces of VR for sure. I mean, that's partly why it, I was drawn here. Uh, Henry Fuchs is one of the people that was really early in that space, and Fred Brooks before him, even then those two gentlemen I got to meet when I visited here a few years ago, and a big part of why I'm here. Oh, fantastic. I was going to ask, um, actually, that kind of leads to a question of like, uh, other than Fred Brooks and... Um, and the virtual reality, what brought you to UNC Chapel Hill uh, since, you know, you were at Google all the way on the, I mean, presumably you were in California or were you in Durham or where were you? Yes, I've been in California a long time, actually. So from, from my PhD all the way to till I came here. So mm -hmm. I had decided when I was really young that I wanted to spend some time learning and then spend some time in industry and then eventually come back and kind of share the industry experience in, through teaching. So it kind of finally was felt time to become a professor. I have you know, looked at a lot of different places. There's many good universities. I had a lot of connections to UNC through friends that I worked with and conferences I'd go to. They're very welcoming. The professors, I, they'd invite me to lunches and events and things. So I got to know some of the professors. I came out and visited here a few times and gave talks and met some of the graduate students. So it, it was just, I, I decided I didn't want to be in a school in California. I wanted to be somewhere else. Uh, I had, and I guess UNC was kind of the top of my list of all the places. It's a little bit strange because I I am very, you know, I've worked in industry so long, it's a little bit of an odd shift. That it's not easy to find a position that matches you perfectly. Sure. And actually the computer science department, it was challenging to figure out exactly how I could do that. They, you know, they have certain things they need taught and they, so, but the exactly. data science school was starting up and they had more flexibility and they are mm -hmm. very tightly connected to the other schools within, within uh, UNC. So. Basically, they suggested I talk to them, and we kind of figured out a system that would, I think, work for everyone. Oh, that's awesome. But we have to go back. So you said mm -hmm. at a young age, you decided you wanted to learn, then work in industry, and then go back and teach. How young, and how <laughs> did you make that decision? That's uh, and and why? I mean, of of all the the 
the things in your life, you know, you've, you've gone through and some things have changed, but that vision of, of, of living that way apparently never changed. You, you stuck to it. So can yeah, you tell would, us more about that? <laughs> I would say I'm a very, like, not a planner. I'm, I'm very, like, go with the flow person, except for this one thing. When I was, I don't know, like 16 years old, I just decided... And I even like framed it with like 25 years of learning because I thought I could get my PhD in 25 years probably. Um, 25 years of industry and then 25 years of being, a, hopefully being an effective professor or teacher. And then I don't know, hopefully that's not the end. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hope not. Uh, but, but I love that. Um, and you just came up with that out of the blue. I don't, I think I read something somewhere. I don't know what motivated it. I can't remember why it was, but it seemed good to have a plan like that somehow where you had an intentional. I, I approve. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I mean, and I, I'm trying to think, uh, I mean, I think there's something to be said about, about having a dream like that. And, um, and to be, to be honest, it sounds like you're living the dream. I mean, you're fulfilling this this dream you had at age 16 and is, and you're doing great. I think it, I mean, it, it sounds corny when you say it out loud sometimes, but like, you know, basically like learning and then putting that into practice and then trying to share as like in a more service way, maybe it's kind of how I envisioned it would make sense in this logical. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's inspirational to me. I mean, and I feel like, and something I've done, maybe I hope, uh, might come out of this podcast is other people thinking, yeah, that is a good dream to have. And maybe I'll do the same thing. I actually think it's fantastic because uh, if my, my personal experience is that there's often a, a, a gap between sort of practice and education. And, I'll, and, I'll, and I think part of the problem with that gap or the cause of that gap is a lot of people that go into education started in education and just stayed there. Uh, there's not a ton of people that go to industry and then come back to education to teach. Um, and so, but, but people like you have seen both sides. You've seen sort of what happens um, in an academic setting uh, when you're getting your PhD, but then you saw sort of like what happens in a corporate uh, industrial setting and you can, you can see what the differences are. You can compare and contrast sort of not just like, what's being done, but how it's being done and how people, what people weight as importance, you know, how people view the things as like, you know, like in academics, they might value certain things and then in industry, they may value different things. And you've seen both of those. And so when you come back to teach, you can teach from that knowledge of having been on both sides in a way that a lot, I feel like a lot of educators don't have that ability. So that's, I think if there's one thing I hope people come away from this podcast thinking is like, maybe that's something I want to do too, is go into industry and then come back to academics to help teach and, and share what I've learned. Yeah. I, I think it, it is valuable. I, I don't mean to say there are definitely some advantages to teaching your entire life. I mean, some of the teachers are very good at teaching because they've been doing it for quite a few years and I, it's new to me. So I'm still trying to figure out how to be a good teacher as well. So <laughs> It, it, it actually, I'm, I was surprised at how challenging it was to prepare for a class and things. Oh, so. yeah. yeah, yeah, 
teaching is hard. It's hard work, <laughs> <laughs> believe me. But I have felt it's been very useful to be able to share stories with the students about things when they're learning them. I show an example of how that showed up in something that we made as a product often, or at least as a prototype of something. Yeah. And that's got to be inspiring to them because I feel like a lot for me when I'm learning uh, a bit, just like you're saying about vision, a lot of learning is learning context. You know, like I might learn how to do matrix algebra, but unless you give me the context, uh, it's completely abstract and not very interesting to me. And I feel like one of the things you can bring is, is you've got that industrial co context that you can say. And this is, you can say here, these are abstract equations, but look at what they can do. This is what we did with them. And this is awesome. Um, it, it's also particularly easy with video games and students because they have a, they relate very strongly. They know them. And any consumer product really is easier because people can directly relate to it. If you're in some kind of more uh, business setting that the students don't relate to, it's not quite as easy, I think, yeah. or I can oh, imagine it wouldn't be. Yeah. Well, I think it's super cool. Uh, it's inspiring to me. Um, anyways, uh, so before we wrap up, I was wondering if you had any advice uh, that, that you've learned along the way that you'd like to share uh, with our listeners. Yeah, I get, a, I get asked a lot by the students, like, what should I study or what should I do and how should I, you know, make myself marketable? And I... When I was hiring people, definitely what I always looked for was somebody that had some deep contribution they could bring, like something they were deep in, but also people that weren't only one-dimensional and they could relate to the rest of the team. So, and I think that that's probably been what has helped me the most through my whole career is I had something deep that the rest of the you know, my group didn't have. I, I was a computer vision person and I had that part. But I also understood a lot of what they were doing so that I could bring it in and connect the things together and, and work with them. So I, I think they call it a T-shaped person often in industry. They have this like some a lot of breadth but some depth as well. And saying like you should just be deep in everything is not a reasonable thing to say. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> so, too hard. Yeah. So maybe like a PhD, you know, it can be very dangerous where you can get very narrow easily. And maybe uh, other things, you can be very flat and broad and not have any specialty. And that's also challenging to find, like, what do you bring to the table then? So having this kind of shape, I think, is a very simple framework to think about it. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it. Uh, um, and the way I relate to that concept is... Um, it allows you, uh, because basically every field, every other group out there, like you might be very good at computer vision, but you're probably going to be a part of a team of people that are experts in other things. And in every field, they have their own, what I found, they have their own language of how to describe things. And they, we may all be talking about the exact same thing, but using slightly different words. And having that T-shape gives you that expertise in one area, but it also gives you the ability to communicate effectively with everybody else who's on the team. And I've just found that, you know, that seems to be like a super helpful thing. That's been very helpful for me. And that's actually how I got started was just being able to communicate sort of what I know to people that are completely afraid of mathematics. You know, I could find the language that worked for them. Well, uh, Rick, I just want to thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for your time. It's no, it's great. I've watched a lot of the videos. And they're they're, they're good, good for me to just actually reframe again, you know, sometimes again solidify, especially if you haven't used it in a while. 
Well, well, thanks again. Uh, thanks again, Rick. I really appreciate you. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been fun.